All right, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, it's easy to miss in, in this uh, section of 1 Samuel that Israel finds itself in a situation it's never found itself in before, at least since the time uh, that it's been in the promised land. Uh, you see, if, if we go back to Judges again, because we know that 1 Samuel is just really a continuation of that time period in, in history, uh, in Judges all the time, we see Israel being attacked by its enemies, by, by its close neighbors. And so as we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4 here and we learn of this battle between uh, the Philistines and the Israelites, this just seems like a run-in-the-mill occurrence that's happened time and time again. And yet something is drastically different this time around uh, than all of the other times that the, the, the Israelites have ever come into contact with the Philistines or anybody else. And that is... That for the first time ever since entering into Canaan, the Israelites are facing a threat from someone that is looking to conquer them and the land that they live in. You see, all those, times in, all those other times in Judges, what they were up against were nomadic raiders. People that were simply coming in, they were raiding the place, they were taking what they could, and they were going back to where they came from. This is the first time that Israel is facing a power from someone that is great enough that not only can they potentially wipe them out, enslave them, as the Philistines are quoted as saying here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, but what's more is they're looking to take over their land. They're looking to settle it for themselves. Um, and what's more is they're facing a threat that they actually have no answer for. Historians don't really know how it happened, and yet from excavations of the time period, they know that the Philistines at this point in history have advanced weapons that the Israelites don't have. Uh, that that they had found a way to uh, mold and meld their iron in such a way that it gave them better weapons than everybody else around them. And so Israel is essentially outmatched, both in numbers and in technology. Uh, what we're reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is a Philistine um, campaign to push into the North Hill country where the Israelites had settled, which was fertile farming ground, something that the Philistines didn't have on the coastal territory that they were from. And so they're looking at becoming themselves a bigger power in the region, and what stands in their way is Israel. Actually, Right before this time, the tribe of Dan had been displaced by the Philistines doing this and had, had to move from the very southern region of where, of where Israel's land uh, claim was to the very northern region of Israel's land claim. And so Dan as a tribe has already been displaced. Israel is finding itself with a threat that it doesn't have an answer for. And so we read of this battle that happens between Ebenezer and Aphek. And we read that the Israelites are handily defeated. It says that they 4,000 men were killed on the battlefield that day. And like any engagement, any defeat, any victory, you, you, you kind of take stock of what's happened afterwards. You try to learn from it, both in victory and in defeat. And so the Israelites come back from having been handedly defeated in a battle that they needed desperately to win. And they say, wait a second, what did we get wrong here? Because this is the land that God has promised us. We're supposed to be here. So there has to be something that, has, that we've missed, that we did wrong. Somebody gets the bright idea and says, oh, hey, wait a second. Where's the ark at? See, they had left the ark back in Shiloh. 
Where last time we heard about Shiloh was where Eli and Hannah were, and they had their interaction, and that was the main place of worship in Israel at this time. And so they say, well, the ark's back there, and what's more is we know that the ark has worked for us in the past, so maybe we should bring the ark, and that's what's going to change things, and so they send for the ark. You see, the ark did have great significance for the Israelites. It, it, it was built because God had commanded them to build it. He said, he said this is going to be... A symbol, what, what, more than even a symbol, this is actually going to be my presence. Uh, God had told them, build the ark, and that as, once the ark is built, he gave them very specific directions on how to build this thing. Exactly every dimension, what materials to use, all of this stuff, because it was going to be the thing that led them through the wilderness and represented God leading them. God's presence with them, going before them. What's more is they, they knew from, from stories of, of coming into the promised land that it was the ark that led them into the promised land. That the priests carrying the ark, that once their feet touched the Jordan River, it was the, Jor- the Jordan separated. And so it was the ark that instituted, gave them the passageway into the land that God had promised them. The land now that was threatened. What's more, probably most famously, it was the ark that led the procession around Jericho. Jericho, a city so heavily fortified that as they've excavated, they, they actually didn't believe, historians didn't believe that Jericho was a real place because the way that they talked about the walls, they said that, that kind of technology to build walls like that did not exist back at this time period. But as they've excavated, they've actually found those very walls, fortifications that are unimaginable to have been built in those days. It was the ark that led the procession around Jericho all those days as they yelled out and without even having to throw a single stone, use a single sword, the walls of Jericho, thought to be impossible to build in those days, came tumbling down. The ark had quite a track record of success for the Israelites. And so you can imagine that hearing these stories, knowing of these things, believing what the ark is, the Israelites hold the ark in pretty high esteem. It's not just simply a symbol, it is a tool. It's a tool that's been used. It's a tool that's been used by God. It's a tool that's been used by them. And like most things that we use and we have success with, with, they began to see the ark as significant, as important. By itself, on its own, the ark carried weight. They've all remembered what God has done using the ark, and so it's important to them. And in this moment of their greatest need, it can best help them now. The only problem is, we see it doesn't. We see that they get defeated, even though the ark is there, even though the ark has worked in the past. And so something has gone wrong. Something's amiss. And what's striking about this is that at the very beginning of the chapter, the author of 1 Samuel tells us that Samuel's word was known, that they had heard of Samuel's word, they had heard of the prophecies. And yet here in their greatest need, rather than going to Samuel, rather than going to God and, and, and saying, what does God have to say about this? What should we do? Where are we? Have we sinned? Have we done wrong in some way? How can we make amends for this? They say, you know what's worked in the past? The Ark of the Covenant. And so they run to the Ark rather than running to God. And one of the truths that we see here 
displayed for us is that sometimes the biggest obstacle to what God is doing is what God has done. And that has no reflection on God, even though it may sound that way and seem that way at first saying it. That what God is doing is most greatly affected and sometimes undermined by what he has done in the past is in no way God's fault, but it has something to do with us and the way we think and the way we act and the way we operate. It is hard. It's almost impossible for us to let go of the good things that God has used in our life. In the times of our greatest need, the ways that God has brought about salvation, redemption, forgiveness, mercy, grace, the methods and the tools that he has chosen to use in that moment, in that time, in that place, we look back on and we have a reverence for it. They have a great significance in our life. And what's more is it's usually hard for us to move on from those things. We all know this from our lives. We, we, we know that we have certain things that are, are greatly significant for us, that, that, that show great changes in our life, that, that, were, that were given to us in, in meaningful times. We all have that first house that we had when we got married and we look back on. It's hard for us to go back and see that maybe the people living there don't give it the tender care that we think we did when we lived there, which we probably still didn't. We all have those places where we've had significant moments with God that we look back on and we say, man, that, that is, there's something there. There's something special in that place. And, and you can feel it every time you walk in. And so it's really hard for us when other people don't seem to see it or feel it in the same way that we do, right? And what's more is when time passes, that, as it always does, and people move on, things change, it's really hard for us. We take it specifically difficult in our soul to believe that somehow that can't be used the same way it was used in our own life, right? The problem is not that God uses things in our life that are significant, that have meaning for us, that we look back on and we say, man... I wish it could be that way. I, 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 I wish that still had the same force it had back then. I, I, I wish other people could see what I see in that. The problem for us, much like the Israelites with the ark in this situation, is when we get to a place that all of a sudden we don't need God because we have what God has used in our life in the past. This, uh, this story of the Israelites in, in the ark here in 1 Samuel is actually pretty reminiscent of a story that they all would have known uh, from the time of the Exodus. Um, when, uh, when, when the Israelites were uh, pretty freshly out of Egypt, uh, they, they came to a place that they, they had gone several days, they had gone quite a while without any water. And not having any water for the Israelites was uh, really problematic for a couple of reasons. One was... Um, they'd had nothing to drink. But the other was that water was tied to their ritual cleansing. And so if they didn't have water, if they didn't have fresh water in which to ceremonially, ceremonially be purified, ran into a whole bunch of issues 
uh, for the Israelite camp and their worship um, and um, morale and everything. And so uh, pretty uh, freshly out of Egypt, they, they, they come to a place and, and, and they don't have water. And so they, they, they grumble, uh, we're told, with Moses. And Moses goes to God and asks God what to do. And God says, go to a rock, this rock, and strike it and water will come out. And Moses goes, he hits it with a staff, water comes out. Great. Forty years later, they find themselves in a pretty similar situation. They've gone without water. They're grumbling against Moses. And so Moses goes to God one more time. And it says there in Numbers chapter 20, it says, And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, Moses and Aaron is talking about. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded. Moses takes the staff, but God told him, take the staff. But remember, don't hit it this time. Speak to it and water will come out. But the Israelites are pretty upset. And so it goes on to the, there in verses 10 through 12. It says, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? You can tell he's happy with them. And it says, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses was in a tight spot. They had been traveling for a while, 40 years. Um, I think Moses was probably pretty tired. He's probably tired of the grumbling. And so in a moment of desperation, of need, and of just simply being worn out, Moses needed something he could count on. He had two things here. One... He had God's word. He had what God had said, what God had said to him to do. Moses, go to the rock and speak to it, and water will come out. The only problem, though, was that in his hand, he had something that he knew worked. And in our moments of greatest need and desperation, what we all want is something that we know will work, don't we? Something that we've seen work in the past. Something that has come through for us in a way that we're not sure if this new way or this new thing could possibly come through. And the moment that we think we've found that thing, the moment that we have something that God has used in the past, and he's used in pretty miraculous ways, we will cling to it with everything we have. And we will cling to it and hold on to it and kick and scream if it's ever possibly pried from our hands because this is the temptation that cuts to the heart of who we are and what our issue with sin is. If you remember back in the garden, the serpent's words to Eve was that that if, if she took the fruit, if she ate it, she would know good and evil like God. That Eve, you have the potential, you have the possibility here to have something that works, to know yourself what works, to be that thing we all love to be, 
in control. To not have to wait on a word. To not have to sit and wait for someone else, namely, more in fact, God, to take up, to act, to, to move on your behalf. That you can actually do it in your time, in your speed, as you see the need arise. You'll know what works, Eve. You'll be in control. The hardest thing in our life is to be in situations and places where we do not feel in control. Well, we know that nothing that we do will work or matter. And that it's up to somebody else. That we have to wait. That we have to just let things play out. That, 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 that we can't say what we want to say. We can't do what we want to do. And we don't like being in this place. And so we come up with methods and techniques and best practices and habits that we can instill in our life that will bring about a desired outcome, that we have seen work in the past, and so we keep feeding into them. We keep doing them because, you know what, there's something there. There's something in it. There, there, there's something to be had. That If I just devote myself to this practice, if I devote myself to this technique, my life will turn out the way I want it. We have a whole bunch of words and names for these things. But you know what the name that we don't ever call any of this stuff? Is superstition. Superstition runs a whole lot deeper in our lives than we like to think it does. Just to be all on the same page, because everybody loves dictionary definitions. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines superstition as a belief or practice resulting from ignorance. Fear of the unknown, nobody has that, right? Trust in magic or chance or a false conception of causation. Another person uh, describing, actually for kids, uh, what superstition is, they said it's, it is often one action that leads to another without something direct, directly linking the two. We like superstition because it helps us feel in control. We like the idea that there are certain things we can do to make sure what we want to happen happens. I'm sure nobody here ever knocks on wood after they say something. That's superstition. I'm sure nobody here ever, like, you know, makes sure not to walk under a ladder. It's superstition. I'm sure nobody here wears the same socks whenever the Seahawks are playing. It's this idea that we can do things that will help the universe turn out the way we want it to. Because, you know, the universe cares about whether or not the Seahawks win. It doesn't, because it's a Steelers fan. <laughs> Me and Justin are on the same page there. But, okay, so maybe, maybe they're saying, but you say, you know, okay, yeah, oh, I will admit, there are some, like, ridiculous things I do, but that's more like, those are things we say, that's what everybody does, so you kind of just do it, it's cultural, that sort of thing. I'm not superstitious, right? I mean, I, 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 I don't buy into that stuff. I, I, I don't believe, I, I, I'm, I'm a man of science, right? 
I believe in cause and effect. I, I believe that this is the way the world works, that there, that there are, that even, even, though, even if it's God that instituted it, there are certain laws and ways that the world works, and, and so you understand those and how that stuff works. And so knocking on one all this stuff, I just do it because, I mean, that's what people do and stuff like that. I'm not superstitious. Okay, I will give you that. You're not superstitious. I don't think most of us are stu- superstitious, but I think we all are a little stitious, maybe. I'll prove it to you. Um, in college, I, um, I developed this uh, pre-test routine. I call it a routine, but it was really a superstition. And there were a few things that I did with it. Um, one of them was, it, it always felt, I always got antsy uh, around test time. And so I couldn't sit still. You might notice that like, when I preach, I walk. Well, one of the reasons why I do that is because when I would study for a test in college, I would have my notes and I would read my notes out loud because I felt like the best way for me to memorize it was hearing it rather than just simply seeing it. And then what's more is I would pace while I did that. I would walk around because it just felt like, I mean, you spend hours just sitting there looking at something and you're about to go crazy. And so I would walk around and I'd get dizzy and I'd fall on the floor, take a nap, and then wake back up. But I would walk around and I would pace. And so I, I would do this. And so for a few hours, you know, the night before the test, I would I, be walking around pacing, talking out loud. It's a wonder I didn't get committed um, because of how it probably looked. But then another thing that I would do is I would never sleep in my bed. I would always sleep on the couch that we had in our dorm room. And I would put a hoodie on, and I would put the hood up, and I'd go to sleep on the couch. Don't ask me why. I think part of it, I was thinking about this this week, I think part of it was I was scared to death that I was going to sleep through my alarm, and for some reason sleeping on the couch, I never felt like I got into as deep of a sleep. The other thing was, I, I think there was something about being, having this different place that I slept and, and having the hood up uh, from the hoodie over my head. It was like, I was like getting focused in. And like even in sleep, I, I, was, going, I was going to focus in on what it was that I just studied. And I wasn't going to let it go too far from my mind. I was always scared to death that I'd wake up the next morning and like there would be nothing there. And so I, I, I did this every test time and time again. And what's more is as, as I went along, it, it, it worked. And so it became my routine. It became my superstition. And, and, and you don't have to tell me how stupid all of this sounds because when I got married and I did it for the first time and I was getting ready to go to bed on our couch with a hoodie on, Hannah goes, what in the world are you doing? And I was like, well, this is what I do before tests. And she's like, what? And I was like, well, I, you know, I, I wear a hoodie and I sleep on the couch. And she didn't say it was stupid, but she did everything else to tell me it was stupid. Like there was a look and there was like, okay, and, and that sort of thing. And I quickly realized, yeah, it's ridiculous, but it's what I do. Well, the time came while I was in seminary to preach for the first time. And I'd never preached before, but you know what I had done before? I had taken tests before. And so you know what I did the night before I preached? I did my pre-test routine. And so I, I walked around and I recited the, you know, I, I was saying the sermon out loud and I put my hoodie on and I slept on the couch and my wife was like, it's not a test, you know. And I was like, I know, but why, this is what I do. And so I did it. Um, didn't work out quite the same way. Because uh, as I was preaching, I, I was there at this little country church. I, if, if there were 15 people in the room, it was packed. And um, and, and so there with hardly anybody in the room, I, I'm preaching about midway through my sermon, a lady faints. And not the good kind of fainting, like the, the bad kind of fainting. And 
I'm, I'm up there preaching, and I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do. What do I do? What do I do? They, they don't teach you this in your preaching classes, what to do if someone faints. And, and so I, I, I'm like running through my mind. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And so I did what every good preacher would do, and I kept preaching. <laughs> and all through my mind, I'm like, I should stop and ask. I should stop and ask. And I, I, just, I just kept preaching. Why? Because I prepared for a test, and I knew what the right answer was. And I, I will say, I am, I'm not proud to admit, I probably kept preaching. It felt like probably like 15 minutes. It was probably like a minute or so. But I kept preaching longer than I should have until I just couldn't stand anymore. And I had to like step aside. I was like, is she okay? Like, you know. Um, I know that sounds bad, but in my defense, one of the paramedics came to Christ that day. So um, I think it worked. Um, no, the, the paramedics were not called. She was fine. But um, one of the things I've learned about preaching since then is that it's not a test. That's a pretty good thing to learn. But even more than that is it's not simply about having something good to say. It's not about having the right thing to say. It is about meeting people where they're at, and more importantly, getting them to a place where they want to meet and they are meeting God where they're at. And one of the things I didn't realize that day was that in a room of about 15 people, the moment that a person faints, they're not in a place where you can talk to them anymore. They're not in a place where they're listening to God and they're trying to hear what he has to say. They're worried about what's going on over there. But I had done the routine. I, 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 I had this thing that had worked before, and yet it hadn't put me in a place to actually respond in the right way to what was going on. There is so much in our world that can go wrong. I mean, if you ever just sit down and just think about all the ways that your life can fall apart, well, that's what causes anxiety, right? And you think, well, I do that way too much. It will drive us crazy. And as we think about all the things that can go wrong in our life, as we think about all the ways it can fail and it can fall apart, it is so natural for us to have a feeling, to want to have the feeling that we just aren't simply passive victims of what may come, but that we can actually take control in some way at least. Yeah, I know it's ridiculous. Yeah, I know there's no direct link between this and that, but at least it's worked before, so maybe hopefully it will work again. It seems like if we were able to do that, even something as simple as knocking on wood well, that would be comforting, wouldn't it? But in reality, this is just superstition. That's all it is. The idea that there is inherent value in anything that we can do that will bring about some universal result that we want, whether it's a football game or the outcome of our life. And what's more is we can as believers be sucked into what really just amounts to a superstitious religion. It's a superstitious religion that tells us that if we live by God's expectations, if we do the things he wants us to do in the way that he wants us to do them, if we just bring them along with us when the time is right at our most desperate need, then he'll bless us. 
if we go in the proper procedure, if we do A, B, and then C, well, then God says, okay, you got it all right. Here you go. Here's the blessing. We get sucked into this. We, we, we actually kind of dip our toes in it and, and, and get acclimated to it because it sounds nice. It sounds comfortable. It sounds good to be able to have the formula to figure out how our life is going to turn out all right, how things are going to go the way we want to. When we hit a hiccup in our plans, well, that's all it ever amounts to. That's all it ever is. Because we can go back, we can reassess, and we can say, oh, you know what we forgot? We forgot the ark. Go get that thing. Bring it up here. We find out what this is like because we like the sound, the comfort of having something we can rely on. But it actually goes, ends up going a whole lot further than that. We take on a superstitious religion. We live in it. We cherish it. We worship it. Because it's still our veiled attempt to go back to the garden and try to control what God has said only he can control. A couple weeks ago, Ed gave me a book uh, that I've been reading, and um, it's, it's by, I, I never heard of him before, it's, it's by a guy named uh, Sky Jatani, and uh, he, he calls this, what he says this is, is he's, he says we have certain postures of how we relate to God, and, and one of those postures is a life under God posture. And that's this idea, this idea that, that God is up above us and, and we're down below him. And God has told us that there are certain ways to live, certain things that we must do. And so we do those things. But we do those things with the idea that because we do them, God will then bless us. He says, it sounds good. A lot of people like it. They think it's actually the right way to live, but it is this backwards understanding of our relationship with God. He, in, in his book, he goes, he says, at first glance, the life under God posture is incredibly appealing. It promises to take away our fear and garner divine blessing. But take a bite, and you find you've been deceived. Life under God cannot be a way of reestablishing a relationship with our Creator because it's actually an attempt to overthrow His rightful place. We may think of ourselves as devout, religious, humble, even moral men and women of God. But in truth, like Judas, we're betraying our Lord with a kiss because we believe that through our obedience, we put God into our debt and expect him to do our bidding in exchange for our righteous behavior. We say, I need to pray today so that I'll be protected. I need to read my Bible so that I'll know exactly what to do. I need to go to church so that I will be blessed. That maybe the reason my life is falling apart is because I haven't been doing some of these things. And so maybe I need to get back into the practice. I need to bring them up from Shiloh because then God will be here. Then God will bless me. Then he'll choose to see what I'm going through. But as good as this might sound and as right as it might feel and as many times as we ourselves have done this and been in this posture, this is still just simply superstition dressing up as religion. If you've been at this a long time, if you've been around the church, if you've called yourself a Christian and this is the way that you've seen your relationship with God, 
that you've understood of how you relate to him, I guarantee you today where you sit, I bet you are bored. On the flip side of that, if you're young, you haven't quite decided yet if this is for you, if this is the right way to go, what's this all about, I guarantee you've probably been talked to about a relationship with Christ in this way, of living like this, that this is all God wants of you, for you. And you've seen people that have lived this way, and I would guarantee today you are skeptical. And you should be. You should be bored, and you should be skeptical, because this is not what Jesus talked about. This is not why God came in human form and died and rose again for you and me. This is not what he had in mind. He did not have in mind that the common question that you and I walk around with every day as we think about our life, our relationship with God, to be what am I doing? What am I doing today? Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I going to church? Am I, am I crossing off the checklist? Am I making sure all my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed? This is not what Jesus had in mind for you and me. And we know that because we see that here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Four different times in this passage, the ark is referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. It says there the first time that it's mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3. It says, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And that might be a weird thing. It seemed like a weird thing to point out because it's like, well, what else is it called Ark of the Covenant? That's what Indiana Jones called it. I mean, I'm not going to go against him, right? That is the main way to know it. Is there another name? And in fact, there were. There were many other names by which they referred to the Ark. Four times explicitly we are told in these 11 verses that the name to know it by, what we need to know about this ark is that it is not just any ark, it is the ark of the covenant. The covenant that God has made with his people. It represents his presence, but it is nothing without his presence. And his presence is based on a relationship that he had established and wanted maintained with his people. Without the presence of God, without the relationship with his people, it's just a wood box wrapped in gold. And as great as that sounds, it doesn't do much good on the battlefield. As great as the things that you have in your life that you think have intrinsic, inherent value because God has used them in the past, they are nothing without the presence of God in your life. The only thing that made the ark, Moses' staff, or even those stone tablets that were written on that were held in the ark, work was God. He is the link that connects everything in our life. The things that work. In our life, work only because of God's presence. Only because of the relationship that we have with him. He wants, to live, he wants us to live our life with him, not under him. 
Jesus says, he says, I, I, I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And the reason he says that is not just simply because he, he's making a statement about his eternal nature and that he was there at the start and he'll be there at the end of all things. No, what Jesus is saying is you are the, I am the first thing you ever need and I am the last thing you will ever need. That the things I have used in your past that have been good, that you cling to, that you look to, that have great significance for you, they are good because I have used them, not because of what they are. Do not mistake the blessing for the blesser. Do not worship the created over the creator. It is me that you were intended for. It is a relationship with me, and don't shortchange yourself looking to the things I have used. Because everything that I use is meant to point you to me. The reason we look to scripture and we say this is authoritative for our life is because this is where we find God. We hear his word. He speaks to us. The reason we say we should pray, we should be in prayer is why? Because God uses that to share his life with us, to speak to us. The reason we say you need to not forsake the gathering together of believers, whether it's here or online, however it is that you are connected to the body of Christ, why do we say that? Not because there is some intrinsic value, that's simply because you go to church, God is going to bless you in your life. It's because when we come together and we worship him as a body, he has chosen and said, that is one way that you know me and grow in me. It is a natural question all the time for us to ask, what am I doing? What more could I do? What have I missed? Why everything is going wrong in my life? But the question God wants us to ask, the question he is after, the question that really matters, because it gets not just to the heart of the matter, but to our very hearts, is why am I doing it? Why are you here this morning? Why are you watching online? Is it because you think just simply that's what you need to do to have a good life? Is it because you think, well, by doing that, I mean, God's going to at least give me, I'm going to get like tangential blessings, I guess, at least. Like, he's got to give me something. Maybe I'll get the scraps, the very least, just by being around it. God is not interested in you simply walking through life and going through the motions. He wants your heart, your desires. He wants to be what motivates you. How do we know if we've fallen into the trap of superstitious religion? It's that we do things simply for what we will get out of it. When God, through his Holy Spirit, is constantly constantly asking us to reevaluate and answer the all-important question of why we are here. Why we read our Bible. Why we pray. Is it for what we think it will do for us? Or is it because we so deeply want a relationship with him that we know that's where we can find him? He is chasing after you and me. Not so that we will simply go through the motions that he's laid out and said he wants us to do, but he is chasing after you and me So that we will know him in such a way that he is the joy and the desire of our hearts. And in him, we find everything we need 
And we give him thanks for the things he has used in our past, and we thank him for how he goes before us, and he's doing a new thing to continue to show us more and more of who he is, that we may grow more and more in love with him. Why? Why is it that you're here today? If it's not for Jesus, you might as well just knock on wood and go home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, simply want to take this time and allow your Holy Spirit space to speak to our hearts, to level with us with why it is that we do what we do in our life. Is it because we think we get something out of it? Have we simply seen it work in the past and so we expect, well, that's the formula, that's the habit. I just need to cultivate it in my life and if I do that, good things will happen. What I want to happen will happen. Would you, Father, this morning, our our prayer is that you would protect us, that you would protect us from the good things in our life and that we would not make the mistake of putting them in your place. Father, would you come to us in our moments of weakness and transparency and would you remind us of what is truly worth our worship, our adoration, our devotion. And it is the one who has died for us. It is the one who gives us grace and mercy when we least deserve it. It is the one who offers forgiveness in our moments of greatest wrong. Thank you that we can come to you, Lord. Would our hearts never grow weary of living with you and in relationship, knowing you as our loving Heavenly Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.